I'm Sarah Shea. And I'm Strangely Duesberg. Welcome to the Pilot House. A podcast where we watch all the shows we missed the first time around. And try to figure out where the heck they were going with this. What do we know about Party of Five? I know nothing. You're like Jon Snow over here on that, uh, that uh, other show. Anyway, <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, you know nothing? You, I, I know no impressions? Absolutely nothing. No impressions whatsoever. Do, do you know what about when the show's from? Nope. Wow, really? You it never just, heard anything about it on TV? Nope. Okay, well, uh, I'll tell you what I know about it. It's from the late, mid-late 90s? Uh, it was a show about five siblings. They are the party in question. And I don't know if I remember, I don't think I actually remember this part, but I, I was looking up other information about it online for the podcast and ran across that they are orphans. Oh. So it's, I think it's a, their parents died and because there's five of them, they're spread apart enough in age that the oldest sibling was granted like guardian status of the younger kids. So I get it's five siblings varying in age between, I want to say the youngest is maybe 12 or 13 not super young mm -hmm. uh, and the oldest yeah somewhere in their maybe early 20s and they it's in tone i believe something of a drama a light drama about them you know going through the foibles of life and it contains someone whose last name is fox and someone whose last name is wolf i remember thinking that was really funny when i was in middle school or high school whenever the show was on the air and um they're all attractive TV pretty no. people. Ma Matthew Fox? Matthew Wolf? One of them. Anyway, no. um, and two guys and three girls? Or three guys and two girls? Definitely not a one and four situation. Positive of that. Uh -huh. I think the youngest is a girl. So it's I'm a just full throwing, house? I'm throwing shit at the wall right now. Yeah, that's all I've got. Okay, I actually, I think this show is name checked in a bloodhound gang song where they're talking about something not being there and they're like and then they say like the parents on the party of five oh. which hearing that the kids are orphans makes sense yeah but i know i know nothing about this yeah. so i'm going in i'm going in cold yeah uh, i just remember hearing a lot about it on tv and never watching it for whatever reason i think i just wasn't into dramas when i was, into it. I was like eh. if it's not funny fuck it <laughs> all right well, jim carrey all the way let's check this out Okay, party of five. Synopsis. Five siblings, ranging in age from 24 years to baby, are struggling <laughs> to stay together six months after losing both their parents in a car accident. Amid struggles with money, relationships, and fumbling through life without parents to guide them, they realize that the most important thing they can do is stick together, or something tender like that. Aw, so tender. I really wanted to say raging in age from 24 years to 24 months, but that baby is not two years old. A baby. Although that baby is a very large baby. I know. I, uh, we'll get into that later. <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll talk baby when we get into it. But first, we need to address the uh, elephants in the room, whether there are any. Were we exceptionally wrong about anything in our What We Know segment? And uh, because we didn't know very much about the show, we were not. 
exceptionally wrong. Yeah, there. W- you knew nothing. Yeah, there, there. I did go uh, look up the the show is name dropped in the Bloodhound Gang song. Good. I'm glad you were correct about that. Yeah, uh, and there was someone named Fox on the show. Yes, uh, the older brother is Matthew Fox, the actor, and the younger brother is played by Scott Wolf. And I, I, I was just inordinately amused by that as a child. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I was wrong about was that it's from 1993, so it just a little earlier. I thought mid late 90s, so early mid. That was pretty close. Uh, yeah, we were right about five siblings. Right about the oldest being the guardian. Oh, I didn't know about the baby. I thought that the youngest sister was the youngest kid. I did not know there was a baby in this show. Which is an incredibly widespread, like, there's like a 22-year spread, 22, 23-year spread on those kids. Uh, Yeah, it's weird. Oh, and the only other thing that I was kind of wrong about is I said, I think I didn't watch it because I didn't like dramas, which was true. But I realized that, yeah, I was like 11 or 12 when the show came out. Yeah. So I was, you know, a bit young for it. Yeah. I was about Claudia's age, the youngest sister. So my parents wouldn't have let me watch this show even if I'd wanted to. Let us move on. A little bit of a recap. So we open with a little cold open scene. Uh, Three young people are looking at cars uh, on a car lot. Uh, The two girls, one who looks about as a teenager and the other is a, a tween, are talking about how cool this black Jeep is. And their brother, uh, who is also a teenager, is sort of uncharacteristically talking about, oh, maybe a station wagon would be more practical. Then the next scene is them driving off in the Jeep. He tries to flirt with some girls in a car, but then he can't drive the Jeep and they start rolling down a hill because San Francisco. (laughs) So what we have established here is we've got some kids who are siblings uh, and they're in San Francisco. That's what we've got in the cold open. And they bought a brand new Jeep. I also noted uh, in my notes, uh, I referred to <laughs> the younger brother's the wolf one, which I was right. That was Scott Wolf is the younger brother. I said, so the wolf one is the mom, question mark, <laughs> which that's a bit of a one note joke in the first scene. He's yeah. not the practical one throughout the episode. So then we move on to our first proper scene. The kids are all in a messy kitchen eating leftover pizza, kind of just establishing that the house is a bit messy. Uh, We've got the oldest brother coming in, uh, Matthew Fox's character, Charlie. Mm -hmm. Uh, We establish that he doesn't spend much time at the house. He sleeps over at a friend's house a lot. He's barely ever there. They also establish that they have a baby brother, and they're having trouble finding and keeping nannies for him. Um, And that's when I immediately went, excuse me, there's a frickin' baby? What is going on? Because I... I did not know that, and it seems very confusing. Yeah. We also get a little bit that the older brother's kind of cool. He gives younger brother, uh, Bailey, tickets to, like, a cool sports game for his birthday, in addition to the fact that he apparently co-signed a lease for the Jeep. Yeah. But then in, like, the next scene, their phone gets shut off for non-payment, and they mention that Big Brother doesn't have a full-time job, so I'm like, what is up with the expensive gifts? What is happening? Um... Yeah, also, I noted here, I was like, what is going on? Why is there a baby? The older brother is like 25, which we learn in the show he's 24, so I was pretty close. And I was like, the next youngest is like 12, which I looked it up on the internet. She's supposed to be 11. So I was like, what? 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 That's already a pretty big spread for most families, 25 to 12, for the same set of parents. Presumably, Charlie was an accident. (laughs) 
when they were very young. Oh, Owen could could be like a unplanned power outage baby. Seriously, you had five kids and two of them were unplanned. You guys need to get your crap together. But I don't mean to speak ill of the dead. <laughs> You're right, though. Twelve to twenty-four is still a very wide spread. And then a baby, which uh, they never established in the episode. In that uh, pilot way that shows sometimes have where they are purposefully vague on certain points because they're still figuring that out. We don't know how old Owen actually is. It's impossible to guess based on the baby, the, the physical baby's age, because babies always in shows, the actors. And also I looked it up and like two different sets of twins and then a th- a th- another like young kid actor played this child yeah like the actor who played owen changed a lot as is common with babies on tv shows um (laughs) what was up with twins in the 90s they're like uh you know what would be even better than than getting one child for x dollars getting two childs for twice the price wait do you not actually know the reason that babies are always played by twins well, it's, it's because, like, they, a child can only be on set for X amount of time per yeah. day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it just, it, like, it, it seems like a lot, like, specifically in the 90s, maybe this was just when it started being publicized that we knew about it because of the Olsen twain. I, I think the Olsen twins were just really famous because they were, I think, kind of a rare occasion where I think they played Michelle for the entire run of the show. Yeah. That never changed. They were always Michelle. And uh, yeah, on most shows, oh my God, on Bones, it's like comical. Uh-huh. Every baby they got to play that baby looked entirely different. And none of the babies looked like either of the actors who were supposed to be their parents. Anyway, it annoyed me. So many things annoyed me about Bones. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Party of Five. Indeed. In the next scene, we've got uh, Big Sister, um, who is Julia Nev Campbell. The 90s actress ever. She just, her face just says 90s. I don't know. If they released a DVD box set of the 90s, her face would be one of the ones on the, the, the cover. Oh, absolutely. And I don't know how much of it is this show just happened to cast actors that became very iconic, or this show was so iconic that all the actors on it became iconic. Uh-huh. It might be a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B, but- She's at school, at high school, doing a test. Yeah. And she looks a little bit to the right, and there's a hot boy looking at her. 90s hot. And it's Johnny fucking Whitworth, and I screamed because it's Johnny Whitworth from Empire Records, the hottest of 90s hotties in Sarah's world, at least. Oh, my God. I, I, in my notes, I wrote, my ovaries would be exploding, except he looks like a baby. So 14-year-old Sarah's ovaries are exploding retroactively. <laughs> he's so dreamy. But anyway, he's, and he is dreamy in the most 90s way. Floppy hair, vocal fry. Yeah. Little bit of a soul patch. Amazing. He's kind of smiling at her. She's sort of nervous. She kind of tilts her, her, her quiz over to him so he can cheat off her. Then after class, they're kind of talking. And she's all, oh, it's funny how you never notice somebody, even though they're, like, right next to you. And he's like, I noticed you. Classic. Yeah. Classic. Uh, dreamy, dreamy bad boy line. This show, especially with the, these two characters' relationship, does all these things that, like, it kind of goes, like, above and beyond or does something a little bit different. Because he's like, I noticed you. 
I cheated off you twice in health class. Yeah, actually, that was pretty good. He's like, <laughs> I noticed you, but then he admits, yeah. 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 That's, that is pretty cute. Then, quest another questionable choice. He They immediately choose him to drop the expo log that her parents died in a car crash six months ago. Yeah. Very weird choice. Also, I was like, six months? Holy, I didn't know it was that recent at the beginning of the show. Like, these kids seem very well adjusted. They're acting very normal for six months after their parents both died in a car accident. Anyway. Um, anyway, they have a little conversation about how he's like, you want to go on a date? And she's like, anytime, anywhere or something. And he's like, what if I said I wanted to show you the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge at 3 a.m.? We're in San Francisco. And she's like, yeah, sure. And he's like, but what about your parents? And then she looks down. And that's when the expo log comes in. But yeah, uh, we've already had three different scenes or lines that were like, guys, San Francisco, get it? Yeah. We've gotten an outdoor shot, I think at this point, of their, you know, painted lady style house. Uh, we've had the, sh- the shot of him in the Jeep sliding backwards because it's apparently... Not automatic. Yep. Uh, in the on a steep hill, one of the nanny in the first scenes like I'm too old to be walking up and down these hills with a baby. So yeah, it's very San Francisco. In the very next scene, we learn that little sister Claudia, Lacey Chabert, Shabert. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Chabert. Chabert. Which I'm gonna stop you right there, Sarah. I'm sorry. You you mentioned that uh, young master Whitworth was a uh, uh, '90s hotness. Younger Sarah would be very excited. Uh, Lacey Chabert was like my first celebrity crush when I was like 11 or 12. Really? Because uh, yeah, when I was about 12, the Lost in Space remake came out, and she was in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I was the same, I was roughly the same age as that character, and I was just like, "Hello!" Like it was. It's so funny to me because I rewatched that film uh, about a year ago with a friend because we had both had really fond memories of like the the space armor that uh, Joey from Friends wears in that movie. I want to communicate how totally I was into Lacey Chabert in that movie. I had no idea that Heather Graham was supposed to be the hot chick in that movie. <laughs> like. Because you were just like, bam, Lacey Chabert. Yeah. When I was 12, I was like, she's old. I don't care. Like yeah. now rewatching it as an adult, I'm like, oh yeah. Heather Graham is like, a, like 20 or whatever. And she's like fresh off of doing Boogie Nights. Clearly she's supposed to be the sex appeal. And like 12 year old me yeah. did not notice. I'm just like. I don't even care. Get back to Penny Robinson. That's that's where it's at. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. I don't remember much about that actress. I was only vaguely aware that she existed, but I don't think I saw the Lost in Space movie. She was also in Mean Girls. But that was later. It just sort of like, I, I kind of came of age as she did yeah. on screen. Like there was that. And then when I was, you know, late teens, kind of coming out of high school, Mean Girls came out and it was like, it's just like fun to kind of sort of see her as it went along. I actually meant to look this up and I didn't. Maybe we should look it up now. Mm-hmm. Whether all the actors were playing the right age, because when this show aired, I was the same age as Claudia, the youngest sister. Right. But I feel like as I got older, I always saw Lacey Chabert playing younger characters than me. 
So I bet she, as she aged, she continued to play teenagers. And I mean, let's be real. Nev Campbell in this show is playing a high school student. I looked it up later and she's supposed to be 15. And she sure as hell is also playing a high school student in The Craft. And she looks about 10 years older. Yeah, she, Lacey Chabert was born in 1982. So she was playing her age in this show. Yeah. And then unsurprisingly throughout her career. Played younger. Characters as you do. So I, I wonder if they went out of their way because this was supposed to be a drama. They tried to actually cast people at the correct age. It was so bizarre seeing young Matthew Fox as well. Oh, yeah. I, I did not. I remembered. Oh, yes, I remember this actor's name is Matthew Fox. I didn't remember who that was until about halfway through the episode. So uh, in the very next scene. Strangely's big crush, as I was saying. Mm-hmm. Claudia is at a concert, and there's a guy playing violin, and he's playing very well. It's sort of a string quartet thing. The concert finishes. The violinist comes over to Claudia and starts talking to her, and through their dialogue, we understand that he is her violin teacher. And he's talking to her. Although, weird that she's there alone. She's 11. Yeah. There's two different scenes where a little sister goes to visit her violin teacher completely alone. And I'm like... What is going on? She's just riding the bus by herself at 11 years old in San Francisco? Seems like it. So he wants to enter her in this violin competition because he thinks she's really gifted and he thinks that she'll win. She's a little conflicted about it because she really wants to be in the school play, that the school's fall play. Yeah. And so she's like wanting to spend less time doing violin just as he tells her she should be spending more time doing violin. Yeah, and he's kind of a dick about it. He's like, you know, you'd have to take on another lesson a week to get ready for this competition, but I think you could win it. And she's like, oh, I wanted to audition for the school play. And he goes, since when do you want to be an actress? Because fucking excuse me. She's 11. She's allowed to be, to want to be as many things as she wants to be when you're 11. Okay. When I was 11, I wanted to be a cake decorator. Okay. Anyway, it's, it's a bit of a dick move. And then she's like, well, I I don't really. I just wanted to do it because all my friends are auditioning. I thought it'd be, like, fun. And he's like, kind of, he practically rolls his eyes like, you're too talented for fun. He doesn't say that, but that's his attitude through the whole show. He doesn't get, like, a redemption arc. But the show also doesn't treat it like he's being unreasonable. The show treats it like he's being the voice of reason here. And I was very annoyed. Also, that actor looked super familiar and I couldn't recognize him. Did he look familiar to you? Yeah, he did. Oh my god, hold on. Now I gotta I gotta look him up. Mitchell Anderson. Oh, that doesn't sound familiar. What has he been in? Jaws Jaws the Revenge. Oh well, there you go. Sure. Okay, I cannot figure out why this guy looked so ding dang familiar, and I'm sorry I'm taking a He was he was on Doogie the Hauser. How many episodes? 51. Wait, was he, was he, uh, nurse, nurse McAdraney? Was he, was he surfer doctor? I believe so, yeah. Dr. Jack Mc, whatever. Yep. Okay. That makes so much more sense. We literally just watched that. Okay. Ooh, we have our first pilot house connection. Crossover. Good. I'm glad we sorted that out. (laughs) Next scene, we go to Big Brother at work. He's painting houses. And he's very nervous about some sort of business deal that he has done with his house painting buddy and some third party guy who has not shown up like he said he would. Yeah, it's like they both put up a lot of money for some kind of business deal. It's not clear what it is. He's really freaking out. His buddy's like, 
don't worry about it. It's cool. I've Howard's a good dude. He's totally on the up and up. And it's like, well, this isn't going to go well. Yeah. Then back at home, their plumbing somehow got so fucked up in the six months since their parents have been gone that they need $600 of 90s money in plumbing work done, which seems like so much. That is a lot. The guy's describing like, oh, it's going to complete need a complete overhaul. It's like, how did they fuck up their plumbing? Well, it does show like f- full slices of pizza floating in the sink. I Yeah, I guess they were just shoving pizza down the drain. Anyway. <laughs> oh, the drain's hungry. Uh, it's my turn to feed the drain. Damn it. It just seems like something they were like, look, we need them to have some problems come up. So how about uh, plumbing? That's the kind of thing kids are not used to having to deal with. How much could a new pipe cost? Six hundred? A thousand dollars? But then little brother gets the checkbook and goes, wait a minute. Somebody wrote a check. Who wrote the last? Who wrote check number 917? They're down to $35. Oh, no. A checkbook. How 90s. Then the plumber is like, oh, well, the, you know, uh, why don't you guys wait till your folks get back into town? And uh, I'll just need 50 for the estimate. And again, I was like, 50 in 1993 dollars for an estimate? That seems like a lot. I've never had a plumbing estimate. The plumber is prescient about the future of San Francisco. And he's like, I need to get while the getting's good. Clearly. Then, Then we go to the next scene where they're all going out to dinner. At a restaurant. It's kind of implied that this is a weekly thing. They're greeted by the owner. We learn later this was their father's restaurant. Yeah. what I forget what their their last name is, but the restaurant is their last name apostrophe. Oh, at, like, I didn't it's notice like that. Salinger's. Yeah, right. Salinger. Yeah. I didn't catch that establishing shot. It's established also through dialogue later. Yeah, it was their dad's restaurant. Clearly his business partner now owns it. They basically have a weekly dinner there that's... It's like the family dinner, check-in dinner. Julia is not there. It's commented that she is missing. But also they move on to more serious conversations, which is that they need money for the plumber, but they're down to $35. Bailey, the younger brother, is like, I don't know how this happened. And big brother basically lays down the law. He says, I'm the executor of the will. I'm in charge of the money. I knew it was a mistake to give you guys a six-month chunk because you couldn't manage it. So from now on, it'll be a month at a time. And little brother's like, how come you get to decide that? You know, just because you're the executor on paper doesn't, you know, you're not our dad. Yeah. So there's a little bit of disagreement over how the money gets handled. But it seems like the situation is, you know, their parents left them, what you know, a, a, a decent amount of money. Yeah. They do own a house in San Francisco. There's like a lawyer who gives a check a couple times a year to the older brother. And then the older brother is kind of doling out the money to the younger siblings who are kind of managing the household. Yeah. He's sort of not, it's established he's kind of not present. He's staying over at a friend's house a lot. He's not really involved. It's the younger brother's job. Like, they have a conversation about the the phone bill getting cut off earlier. And older brother says to younger brother, why didn't you pay the phone bill? And he goes, why didn't I pay the phone bill? And I thought he was going to get reasonably like, you're the executor of the will. You're the older brother. Why didn't you? And then he goes, why didn't I pay the phone bill? It's like a funny moment instead. And I'm like, (laughs) I don't know, because you're like 16. Yeah. Older brother's 24. Maybe it should be his job to pay the damn phone bill. But it seems like older brother has really left the younger ones to fend for themselves practically. Bailey is the one who seems to be the most concerned that Julia has skipped dinner. Like the others note her absence, but like it's clear, like 
it is part of this arc that Bailey has in the episode where he really seems to be the one who is the most focused on the family's emotional well-being. He's less about the rules and everything and more about the kind of the emotional well-being. You made some joke about him being the mom. Uh, there's a joke about him being the mom early in this first scene, but I really do feel like he's the one, like he's the um, empathic one who's really kind of, he's trying to balance it all. That's true. He is. He does seem to be taking on a lot more responsibility than Julia, for example. Yeah. Even though they're only supposed to be a year apart. He's the one who's calling and interviewing nannies and stressing about the phone bill. And she's, you know, flitting around buying leather jackets and yeah. dating bad boys. I mean, we all we all deal with grief in our own ways. Yep. But yeah, in the next scene, they get in an argument because she gets home. They get in an argument because she was out shopping, buying a leather jacket for her hot date with PK. <laughs> the guy's name was this a 90s thing guys in tv shows and movies having like weird abbreviation names i feel like that was a thing because like jeremy london's character was ts in Mallrats. yeah pk and it's not like I, I mean i guess i don't know if he ever comes back it it definitely seems like he's not going to be a continuing character but what a weird name to give a one-off character pk anyway like a Walter PPK? He's supposed to be like a gun? Anyway. But little brother is mad that she missed dinner because, and we really establish in this scene, it's her dad's restaurant. They agreed that they would always have dinner there together once a week to like check in and touch base and make sure they were, you know, staying in, in, involved in each other's lives or something. And it's weird because one second ago, she seemed really excited to talk to her brother about her date and her new jacket. She's like, I'm going on a date with this guy from my trig class. And then the next second, when he gives her a hard time about skipping dinner, which seems reasonable, she gets like really sassy immediately. Yeah, It's hard to tell what their relationship is going to be like. It's at times very close and at times very adversarial, which I guess can happen with siblings who are that close. But still, it felt like it felt less like it was about siblings and more about the writing, not being sure what they were doing yet. The shifts in tone between the two of them don't seem to be predicated on any discernible metric. It's maybe just it's a pilot and they're still figuring things out. Right. So because there's sort of money troubles going on, Claudia decides to try to pawn her violin because she's overheard Bailey calling nanny agencies. From a payphone, because apparently they still haven't paid the phone bill. Uh, and he finds out that in order to hire a nanny, not only do you have to pay the nanny, you also have to pay 15% of the nanny's yearly compensation up front. So she's at a... To the, na- to the agency. Yeah. It's like... I, wow. That's probably true, but that's a lot. Good money if you can get it. Yeah. So Claudia has taken her violin to a pawn shop. Alone again. She goes alone. No one is monitoring this 11-year-old. Which I think probably, like, I do seem to remember that being, like, a real staple trope of the 90s. Like, the cool latchkey kids who were basically miniature adults. Yeah, I guess so. I feel like there were a lot of Disney Channel shows in the 90s where it's like, the kid was like taking a taxi home from school and like whatever, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know. I guess so. But also I feel like the pawn shop owner would be like, yeah, nice try kid. Yeah. Bring back one of your parents that says it's okay for you to sell this violin. You know, it seemed a little sketch that this guy was like, sure. I'm about to hand $350 of nineties money in cash to an 11 year old. 
in exchange for this violin. Like that's. It was kind of a cute moment because like he's sort of dismissive of her, and then she kind of like puts her foot down and like, like, gets tough and like bargains with him and gets talks him up from two fifty to three fifty. Yeah, there's a. It's a little. He's playing it like I'm a sleazy pawn shop owner, but then right at the end she says. She, she wa- I was about to walk away. Then she walks back, opens the case, takes out a picture of clearly her mother that was in the case, and then says to him, you're not going to put it in the window, are you? Could, could you put it in the back just so it doesn't sell right away? And he kind of softens and nods. And it's actually, it was kind of cute. But it was still like, why are you giving hundreds of dollars in cash to an 11-year-old? What is going on? Right. Also, I was I was also being confused because I'm like, wouldn't the nanny fees come out of like the parents' estate? But I guess they really were letting the kids sort of self manage. It wasn't like they contacted the lawyer and like, hey, we need money for the nanny fee. It's like the lawyer gave them money, and it was very much they were supposed to, in order to uh, allow this situation where the older brother is their guardian and they're not being put into like foster care or something. They needed to prove that they could manage all the stuff themselves, which I guess makes sense. I just wanted to point out that the pawnbroker is played by Jay Brazo, who's like a noted character actor who's sort of appeared in lots of lots and lots and lots and lots of television. Uh, and it, we again continue our record of every time strangely recognizes someone and refers to them as a noted character actor, I did not recognize him at all. Yeah. Like, like he he's the kind of actor who's, like, had a bit part on X-Files and a bit part on, you know, You everything. always mention X-Files. Because everybody alive has been on X-Files. I know. And I never watched it. Ryan Reynolds was on X-Files. So this is clearly why I never recognized the guys that you recognize, because you're always thinking of them from X-Files. Right. That's where I recognize all all my guys from. (laughs) All my guys from X-Files. Excuse me. Do I know you from (laughs) X-Files? Moving on. Yes. Little brother is interviewing a nanny who's like a total bitch. I can't tell what this scene was supposed to be about. I mean, uh, it was clearly supposed to be kind of humorous. Yeah. But it was also like, she he's interviewing this nanny and he's very much like yeah when can you start because he's just look we just need a nanny you know yeah we need someone to watch this baby uh and she's all very like she she starts she leads with the agency told me about your situation and i would love to help okay so it's not like you're walking in here going oh i didn't realize this was this madhouse of teenagers self-regulating with no parents she knows the situation but then she immediately backs out when she finds out that this fucking teenager doesn't have a child-rearing philosophy and hasn't read, like, some kind of French book about <laughs> child development. It's like, what did you expect? <laughs> what did you think you were going to be walking into? They have two scenes where they interview a nanny, and the nanny sees the, the madness of their house and immediately backs out. And it's like... Surely the agency is telling these people. She says that the agency told her the situation. And somehow they're expecting to walk in and it just to be like the parents were there, but not. I mean, I I get that they're (laughs) kind of doing this like rule of three. And it's like the first one was too harsh. The second one was too scared. The third one was just basically Michelle Pfeiffer. Like. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But it's still it, it plays 
it's like if they wanted it to be funny, they should have done it up a little goofier. Yeah. As it was, it played a little too realistic, but also like, what what the fuck did you expect, lady? Which I, 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 that is kind of a recurring thing in the show where there's these moments that on almost any other show, I think would be really more strongly played for laughs. And instead we get yeah. these kind of like really awkward interactions that I, I can't like the, the, the first nanny interview sort of feels like it's being played for laughs because the dog is sitting there at the table with Bailey talking to her and the dog is like nodding its head and yeah. like laying its head on the table and like, like giving her stern looks. Right. And she says. To this teenager who has already, it's already been made pretty clear that he just wants to hire a nanny. He doesn't know anything about what to ask a nanny. She says, have you read any foreign sounding name that I assume is the name of like some child rearing expert who's read book, written books? I didn't look it up. And he goes, uh, I don't think so. How does it start? Maybe I'll remember or something like that. It's like... <laughs> But again, oh. that that's that's like a joke, right? It's like a joke for her to yeah. go, have you read any Jinjois or whatever? It's like, okay, bitch, you know very well he doesn't know what the fuck you're talking about. Come on now. Anyway, it's just, she, and then as she leaves, she's like, there is an odor. Yeah. A house where five children have been left alone, there's going to be an odor, lady. And also... Like, if, if she acts like she's super on board when she sits down. Oh, I would de- be delighted to help you. Like, did you not notice the odor? Like, anyway, it's just, yeah, again, there's a lot of bits of the show. that It's it's like they're trying to play it for laughs, but they also wanted to retain. The, the realism or something. Yeah, it, it was a bit weird. But we move on to Big Sister and her bad boy date at, like, a club. Yeah. And she's just incredibly uncomfortable right off the bat for no discernible reason like maybe she's never been to a club before yeah i mean she is in a a 21 plus thing underage yeah it's they she makes a comment about yeah he knows the bouncer and that's how they got in or whatever but it's you'd think she'd be trying to be like yeah this is cool she's not playing it like i'm trying to act cool but i'm uncomfortable she's playing it like why did you take me to this garbage place yeah i hate this it's a little odd um, cause the rest of the episode, she's very much trying to impress this boy. And in that scene, she's like, ugh, why are we here? Also, it's weird. Cause like, you know, it's a crowded dance floor, like, like and flashing lights, like a club, right? Uh huh. Not just like a bar. And there's all these people moving on the dance floor, but they're playing this like mid tempo grunge song. <laughs> yeah. And obviously it's a trope of TV and movies. That the people dancing are not dancing to actual music. They're just moving. They're shuffling feet. Yeah. So that they can record the dialogue. But this was an especially weird needle drop. <laughs> it's like, like that, that song just doesn't seem like, not just, oh, it, it doesn't look like they're dancing to that song. That doesn't seem like the kind of song they would play in that kind of club. Anyway, Big Brother shows up. Doesn't like that she's there. Um, but... He does let her walk away without too much fuss because his painting friend shows up and they need to have a conversation. Then while she's talking to bad boy at the bar, we see brother and friend get in a fight, presumably about the business deal. And then even though he just ordered them beers and they haven't even taken a single drink, she's like, you want to get out of here? Like, I just paid like $10 for these beers (laughs) or whatever beers cost in the 90s. Yeah. I just I just paid $10 for these illicit substances we're not supposed to be drinking. Maybe we should at least pretend to enjoy them. 
She then takes him home? Where there's, like, presumably at least a baby and an 11-year-old hanging around? Yeah. Weird. She was so excited about this leather jacket, which in the previous on the previous day she was wearing with a nice little, like, small floral pint dress, very 90s outfit. In this scene, she's wearing, like, a turtleneck with, like, this really nerdy-looking crocheted vest. Yeah. It, it didn't even especially look like something that character would wear. Certainly not something she'd wear for her big date with this sexy bad boy to go to a club where she just bought a brand-new leather jacket. In the next scene, I typed a note, she looks like my mom. Because she's wearing these, like, baggy pants. It's like the, the, the show did not know how to dress a 15-year-old girl. <laughs> They're in her room and they're like on opposite ends of the room. And he like looks at a photo and is like, oh, is this, is this your parents? Your mom was really pretty. And she just goes, do you want to kiss me? <laughs> like out of nowhere. Not very smooth, Nev Campbell. Yeah. And then they start making out. But then like Big Brother starts yelling. That they need to have a family conference. Yeah, I, she starts making out with the boy. Mm-hmm. And then she grabs his ass. Yeah. And he's like, whoa. I know. And I thought in that moment, I was like, oh, so he's going to turn out to not be skeezy, which we kind of thought we were leading up to. He's going to turn out to be like kind of a, he's not a, as much of a bad boy as he's putting on the front of, right? Yeah. And he's kind of pulls back and she's like, did I do something wrong? And he's like, no, you just surprised me. Yeah. And they start kissing again. And you're like, oh, that was kind of a cute moment where he was like, whoa. It was, it was kind of a fun reversal where I guess she's depicted as having some some drive and some agency, which is not something I'm used to seeing happen with the teen girl romances on television. Yeah. You know, it's usually the boy is the aggressive one who's like, come on, it's a, you know, it's a thing. And she's like, stop it, you know, like, or whatever. And, like, this is like, she's like, I want this. Mm. Like, I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and their previous interactions were very much like him being the cool, smooth one and her being very like, yeah, okay, uh, whatever you want me to say, cute boy. Yeah. And then in this scene, she's a little more, yeah, uh, aggressive. And it was like, I thought it was going to make their relationship different than it turns out in the end. But uh, Matthew Fox, I'm sorry, <laughs> Charlie starts yelling. <laughs> Uh, we need to have a family meeting now. It's funny because Claudia, little sister, is sitting on the steps and she's like, she's kind of busy right now. Like, she knows what's up. Yeah. They go downstairs. She says goodbye to the dreamy boy. He says 3 a.m. on the Golden Gate Bridge. And she's like, not tonight, but maybe tomorrow. And it's kind of, I don't know, it was like a nice moment between them, I thought. I really thought they were leading somewhere else with this guy. Um... Then they have their family meeting where we learn that his friend's buddy that they were supposed to have the deal with split town with the money for their business deal. And he is out 12 grand. That's a lot of money for a 24 year old to just lose. Yeah. Today. He'd, he'd been trying to flip a house. That was his business deal. Also, they point out, well, you know, how much money does that leave us until because they... They, have, they say they have four months before they're going to get another chunk of money from the lawyer who doles out money from the estate. Yeah. Bailey points out they're down to 2500 for the next four months. And they have a mortgage payment coming up. And they have to find a nanny. And they have to play, 
fix the plumbing and they have to pay the phone bill. Like yeah. they have a lot of significant expenses coming up. And the lease on the fancy Jeep. So they start fighting. Julius gets sassy and stalks out of the room looking like my mom. Yep. Bailey and Charlie are fighting. And then little sister Claudia starts crying and saying, this wouldn't happen if mom and dad were here. Why aren't they here? And it's a really sad moment. Bailey and Charlie stop yelling at each other long enough to realize, oh, right, our 11-year-old sister is in the room. She also just lost her parents six months ago. And, like, this is hard. A thing that I do really enjoy with the money troubles aspect of the show is there's an undercurrent in it of if they show that they can't manage the money and they can't self-regulate, that they'll get pulled apart. So, like, it's not just like, oh, shit, we don't have money. It's like if we can't put on a face to the world that we've got the shit our shit in a group we're gonna get separated yeah claudia is gonna have to go to a foster care owen definitely will go into foster care yeah they he mentions bailey mentions when he's calling nanny agencies he's like oh my god i can't believe you have to pay 50 percent up front to the agency but he specifically says social services says that owen has to have a qualified caregiver yeah so they're not just hiring a nanny because they don't have time to take care of him. They they legally have to yeah. provide. There has to be an adult in the house taking care of this baby, which is reasonable. Right. If it was just a 24-year-old and a 16-year-old, and the 24-year-old was taking responsibility for a 16-year-old and for some reason a baby, yeah, I could see them maybe just saying, but that many and an 11-year-old? Yeah that they're taking care of as well. Yeah. There needs to be a qualified caregiver watching out for that baby. And, but, and so that what's interesting in this scene to, to kind of lead back into the tender moment, the older kids are fighting because they just, they want to hold things together and they're worried about money and everything. And then Claudia starts crying and is like, I'm scared. This wouldn't have happened if mom and dad were here. Why aren't they here? And she sort of brings it all back down to like this emotional core family moment. After they've all been mm-hmm. sort of fighting about practicality, she brings it back to an emotional place, which actually yeah. in terms of writing on the show, I, I really, really liked that moment that they were getting bogged down in sort of the details and the broader, I guess, bird's eye view. And Claudia was like, I'm here. Hello. It's funny because at that moment, with which is a very tender moment between Bailey and Claudia and definitely a very emotional core show moment it was in that moment that i realized that i was the exact same age as Lacey chabert when the show came out and in that scene in that close-up she's wearing this just like knit shirt with little rosettes made out of ribbon on the collar and i just had this intense nostalgic moment for such a weirdly specific thing because I absolutely had a shirt like that. <laughs> I, those little rosettes made out of, made out of ribbon were yeah. like a thing. I had multiple clothing <laughs> items. I'm pretty sure with those little rosettes on them. And I just, I just had it, all the rest of the stuff, all the rest of the nineties moments in this show made me nostalgic in a very broad way yeah. for like our societal idea of the nineties. Yeah. That made me nostalgic for like a literal thing from my own life. It was just a weird thing to focus on while they're having this big emotional moment. 
That's amazing. Also, this was about the midway point of the show. And that's when I suddenly remembered that Matthew Fox is Jack from Lost. And I was like, oh, he needs to go back to the island. (laughs) And immediately I was like, just now this character is even more hilarious to me. Like how he doesn't have his shit together. Anyway, I, I just had the, that weird moment of like two people in my brain fused into one. Right. It, it, I had the exact same thing when I put together that Paul F. Tompkins, amazing stand-up comedian, podcast maker guy that you introduced me to was awkward gay guy at bar in the show community and awkward uh. open mic MC from the tenacious D movie. Like when those, when, cause I knew those two part, those two roles were the same actor and I loved him yeah. and I loved Paul F. Tompkins, but I'd never found the overlap of that Venn diagram. And then when I did, it was like, Whoa! <laughs> yep. I was already familiar with uh, PFT by the time I watched community. So, that whoa I just did, like, <laughs> I feel awkward about it because in my mind, the THX, like, wah sound was playing, but instead it's just me going, whoa. I could tell you were trying to do something and I just let you do it. <laughs> Thank you. Moving on. <laughs> the next morning. We have uh, Big Brother coming home and he is moving back in officially. He is saying, I'm going to be back in the house. I'm going to start taking care of you guys. I'm going to start start taking responsibility. And he wants his room back, which uh, Julia has been living in and isn't very nice about telling her to move out either. He's not like gentle about it. He's like, you better put my stuff back where you found it. Yeah. It's like he comes in and says like, all right, I'll be, I'll be taking care of you all and I'll be the dad again, but then clearly has no idea how to dad in any practical way. And just starts being like a dick. He's not even being like a very good brother. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm moving back in. Sorry, that means I'm going to need my own room. I'm not sleeping on the couch. Clearly their house, I, I, I felt like, again, this was a thing where they were being vague about it because they weren't sure about the layout of the house or something maybe. But I'm like, wait, how many bedrooms do they have? Because presumably their parents had a room. But maybe, but he's also 24. So he'd probably moved out of the house yeah. By the time their parents passed away. Yeah. But then he's like, I want my room back. But it's like, how long has it been since it was your room? I don't know. It was it was very unclear. Yeah. And then, they, then the next scene, they're setting up a tent in the living room to be Claudia's room since she and Julia can't share a room, which is fair. 11-year-old and the 15-year-old sharing a room is a lot to ask. Yeah. I, I think it was just like there was a shuffle on down. So Julia got kicked out of like a room and then Claudia is like, it shuffled on down. So like the shit trickled downward and Claudia was the one who ended up giving up a room because they want to keep the baby in a room. But what was the situation? Yeah. But like, does the baby have its own, uh, his own room? Yes. A lot of times babies don't have their own right. room when you have that many kids. Well, we see later in that the bassinet the, in the parents' room. We see later that the baby has his own room. I actually didn't, read that at all i read that the bassinet was in someone else's room oh it didn't look like a nursery it looked like somebody else's bedroom yeah it, it, i thought it was bailey's room actually that could very well be which would then yeah. mean they have because, a three-bedroom house because but yeah i was like okay so 
They had five kids. Okay, four living with them. Mom and dad have to have a room. Bassinet with Owen could have been in parents' room. Yeah. And then I guess two other rooms and Bailey gets his own room and then the the two younger girls were supposed to share a room. It just it it made me go, "Wait, how many bedrooms do they have and why is this his room?" cuz he says, "I'm taking over mom." He doesn't say, "I'm taking over the master bedroom." He says, "I want my room back." Anyway, it's the, very unclear what's actually going on in the yeah, house, but in that conversation, that he does refer to that room as the master bedroom. In Oh, I in that conversation. He said my room. He d- he also calls it his room. It's very confusing. And this is something the fact that we're like trying to sort all this out and we've had a couple of these conversations like it points to even though the pilot does a really good job of sort of establishing the five of these characters and sort of the four the actual four characters and sort of like their traits and sort of where they fall within the family. There's a lot of things that are left very unclear and the geography of the house is one of them. And for how much drama there is centering around occupying the house and keeping up the house and the da 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 da, the geography of the house is very unclear. Which is often the case in shows, especially in the first yeah. episode when they haven't built all the sets yet. Yeah. But it still was like, hey, how many freaking rooms do they have? Claudia's got to sleep in a freaking tent. And she's a champ. She's a real trooper about it. She's like, oh, it'll be fun. Yeah. She's not like, why do I have to sleep in a tent? She's just, she's totally cool about it. So uh, as we mentioned, due to the room shuffle, Claudia is setting up a tent in the living room that will like be her room. And she's kind of excited about it. It's a fun adventure for a kid. Yeah. And as she's doing this, Bailey enters with Mrs. Pick, who is nanny interview number two. And she's kind of, you know, older lady. She's yeah. got a head scarf on. She's got a... Babushka vibe. Yeah, Mrs. Doubtfire-esque. I don't know about that. But she's she's holding Owen and saying, oh, what a love you are and being all cute and everything. Again, she walks into the house and is like, oh, yes, baby, great. Okay, cool. You're the teenage boy who's like going to decide whether or not I get hired. Yeah. This is fine. And then she sees them setting up a tent. And they, there's like a sound effect. Again, they're trying to play kind of a, 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 a comedic vibe. Yeah. There's a sound effect almost like the Jaws theme that... Na, yeah. Na, yeah. When they say, oh, uh, I, this is going to be my room because, you know, my sister and I can't share a room. And she's like, uh, what? And then Bailey says, it's, yeah, we, it's fine. We barely use the dining room anyway, which... Yeah, there are a bunch of kids. They're not hosting dinner parties. Why would they? They probably eat in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah they don't. Eat. And they, but it, that line also gets a look from her and a. It's like, really? That's like a, that's a red flag for you. Yeah. That they don't use their dining room. Like, okay, I get her being a little nonplussed about the little girl sleeping in a tent. Yeah. She immediately goes, "Oh, uh, I just realized I forgot to leave my." emergency break on i'll be right back I'll, I'll let myself out and it and they're like okay she's never coming back yeah she almost forgets to hand them back the baby yeah she starts to walk in she's like Oop, hands them the baby yeah here's the baby again, she immediately she's fine with this whole situation and then she's like wait a child sleeping in a tent none of these women are like prepared for what's gonna happen and none of them are like okay this is weird but i'll give it a try yeah and see if i can maybe sort them out nope. yeah she's just like well, a little girl sleeping in a, 
a tent. They eat at the kitchen table. I'm out of here. I want to point out special mention. This scene, I love. Uh, she leaves, and Bailey's just like overwhelmed, and he goes, "She's history, right?" And uh, Claudia Lacey Chabert looks at him, and it's like this lovely deadpan thing that Lacey Chabert does a lot. She just looks at him and goes, "Ancient," <laughs> like, like totally stone faced. Yeah. Like, she understands what just happened in the scene almost more than he did. Oh, I loved it. So then we, we cut to Julie, who has f- found uh, uh, J- PJ, JP, PK? RQ. <laughs> ML. Julie has found awkward hot acronym at a pool hall and is like, hey. Uh, the most confusing scene ever. This scene made no sense to me. She just shows up out of nowhere. Yeah. And he's immediately nonplussed to see her. She's like, well, do you want to hang out later? And he's like, no, I'm I'm busy. And she's like, how about tomorrow? And he's like, I'm busy. Such a dick. Well, it's just, I don't know. It's so confusing. Because, like, the last scene we saw, they're like, go on a date. Go back to her place, start making out. He's he gets the information that she's not real shy about it. Yeah. Which for most teenage boys, I we're talking sitcom broad tropes here. I'm not making generalizations yeah, yeah, yeah. about real humans. You think he'd be into unless the show gave a reason for him to not be. He doesn't like having his butt touched. Clearly he's really homophobic. It's it's not gay if a girl doesn't. Um but then it's she shows up. And it's not, there's nothing, there's no drop of dialogue to give us a hint that anything has been going wrong up to this point. There's no, where he's like, oh, what are you doing here? Yeah. Oh, sorry, I, I tried calling you, um, but you weren't home. So then I called one of your friends and they said you were here. They didn't give some line that indicate that she kind of had been trying to get a hold of him up to this point. She just shows up at this pool hall where he is. And he's immediately like, Oh, this bitch. It's like, what? What happened? We were we were great, and now all of a sudden not? Which, it's not like that doesn't happen, but it's it's just for a TV show, for a pilot especially. It was very weird to have him do this total 180. Yeah. And not the kind of 180 that indicates he was playing her the whole time to get something out of her. It's the kind of moment in a, in a piece of television writing or whatever where... You've blindsided the character, but you've also blindsided the audience. Yeah. There's a cognitive dissonance because the information that you've given us about him leading up to that point does not seem to equal the cold shoulder he's giving her here. Exactly. It comes out of nowhere for the audience as well, that he's just like, oh, um, my friends and I are going to Berkeley. And she's like, oh, cool. Can I come? He's like, oh, we're camping out for some kind of tickets, concert tickets or something. And she's like, okay, well then how about tomorrow? And he's like... Look, I don't want you hanging around. We're not going out. And she's like, oh, okay. Kind of thought we were. I mean, she's not doing anything unreasonable for two people who have just started casually seeing each other. Yeah. He acts like they've never been on a date and she's just some weird girl who's following him around. It's very strange. Yeah. And it just feels like the show really wanted her to deal with something emotional, a normal teenage thing. Yeah. That was like a bridge too far while she's dealing with everything else in her life. And they just wrote it really poorly. And it bummed me out because I was stoked about the idea of Johnny Whitworth being a regular on the show. It's kind of a bummer that 
it was so random. Which is a bummer for how that was written because the aftermath of it in her interactions with Bailey, I actually really enjoyed those interactions. Yeah. But the setup to get into it doesn't really feel earned. It just feels like, you know what? Yeah. What if he dumps her like out of nowhere? Yeah. Okay. Let's write a scene where he dumps yeah. her. And yeah. It doesn't have to make any sense. He just does. I wonder if this inconsistency in the the uh, the PK arc is because it's like a holdover from a previous draft or a change in a draft. So like the initial draft was just kind of like she had sort of an awkward arc of like getting together with a boy. And then it's like, oh, we need to have this emotional core resonance kind of family coming together thing where Bailey and Julie sort of work through stuff together or where Bailey helps Julie a little bit. So let's have the boy dump her uh, or, or, get, or be rude to her or whatever. Yeah. Like it kind of feels like two different drafts of a script. Yeah, that's, Interacting. that's a thing that happens. It could be. Yeah. But then we go home and, you know, they're putting the baby to sleep. They're helping little sister with her homework. Everybody Hurts is playing. Oh, my God. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> that is how on that is. Like, everybody hurts. Like, it was so on that. Because, like, she gets the cold shoulder from boy. Everybody Hurts starts playing. And then there's this, like, like kind of, like, there's this like sort of emotionally shot thing where Bailey is carrying Owen in into the room and putting him down in the bassinet. And he's like looking down at Owen and it's like, Oh yeah. It's like, you know, he's like, I gotta be honest with you, buddy. I'm at the end of my rope here. And like, you know, Owen's kind of sleepily falling asleep and Bailey's kind of putting him down. And then Bailey goes, if I can't find someone to help me with you soon, I'm going to sell you to white slave traders. Yeah. <laughs> or something. And it's just like out of nowhere, like, Everything in the scene is constructed to have it be like the emotional core kind of montage moment where like everybody's everybody's at their lowest. And then Bailey just makes this joke about selling the baby. It was, again, a weird, it was kind of a fun moment. Yeah. But looking at the show overall, that's one of those moments where they were, were like, they could not decide how much funny and how much drama they wanted in the show. So then Claudia is doing her homework and the, the, the boys are helping her and like they're kind of like watching TV or like doing their thing. And she's like she's asking them for help and they're kind of they're they're helping her. It, it was like a cute moment. It was one of the moments in the show where I really felt the family vibe. Like Yeah. They the casting in this is really great that like when these characters are just sitting around together, it does feel very familial and very like relaxed and sort of a I don't know, a lot of T V families I don't feel that especially in early episodes and like this just felt like yeah we're all the kids just hanging out she's sitting in her tent doing her homework basically making them do her homework actually yeah and then julia gets home and she's trying to keep a brave face they're like where were you and she's like oh i was with boy bailey goes well that was quick you only left like an hour ago what did he dump you (laughs) smooth and then she just looks kind of like she doesn't know what to say. And instead of being like, "Oh, crap. I'm I'm sorry." He says the the dickiest line that Bailey has in the entire show. He goes, "You're not surprised, are you?" Which what a fucking horrible thing to say. But then says something kind of nice. He's like, "Well, you're too good for him anyway." It's like, "Wait, are you calling her an idiot for not seeing this coming?" Yeah. Or are you mad at the guy because he's a jerk? I What are you doing, Bailey? Yeah. Uh, weird, weird, weird line. I'm not blaming the character for it. It's, it's, I think it was poorly written dialogue, but Big Brother kind of tries to 
dad at them. Yeah, he's like, what about, you shouldn't be going out on school nights. And she's just like, go to hell, Charlie. Yeah, and he's like, you know, Claudia, it's lights out. And she's like, whatever, I never go to bed this early. And he's like, well, you do now. I have to be in charge or we'll get split up. Yeah. And little brother kind of yells about, uh, Bailey's yelling, you know, you're the one who fucked up and lost 12 grand. You need to get a job. Again, a weirdly harsh line from Bailey. Bailey is at times supposed to be kind of the mom, the more mature one, the more emotionally responsible one. And then he'll have these asshole lines. Yeah. But then Charlie says, I've been looking. I've got some carpentry stuff in the wings. Yeah. Which does sound like an excuse. But then Bailey's response is, I've seen what kind of jobs you're circling in the paper. Construction foreman, master carpenter. He says, you're looking for a career, not a job, and we need money now. It's sort of poorly constructed because we don't really get the key to Charlie until the very end when he's talking to Joe, the bar owner, manager. Restaurant owner. Yeah. But it, it seems to me that like the the careers that he had circled are like he wants to be like the boss, like master carpenter, construction foreman, etc. And he it's like he kind of has like basic trade skills, but he's not he's not really qualified for those jobs. Yeah. He's not willing to do his time and do entry level jobs. Yeah. He's trying to to make a quick buck. He's trying to flip a house. He's trying to get master carpentry jobs. But we don't have that piece of information yet no. in this conversation. So it just seems like Bailey is being weirdly harsh. Yeah. You're looking for a career? Well, you need to get a job because we need money. Like, sorry that you're 24 and trying to start a career. You need to throw that all away and get a shit job so you can yeah. support your 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 siblings. It's which is kind of true but also it's harsh the way bailey delivers it. it's super harsh i mean it, it's just it is an interesting thing that charlie even though he's 24 like hasn't gone to college like he's just kind of like yeah we don't i mean we don't really know that it's it's we're just getting hints a few a few lines of judicious expo lug would have been helpful with that yeah bailey goes to julia in her room to try to cheer her up yeah she's crying he's like Hey, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm fucking fine. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? I love his put down of the guy. He's like, yeah, <laughs> he made a gun rack in shop class. Like, like, that's not the kind of guy you want to be dating. And she's like, really? Really? That's, that's supposed to make me feel better. It also explains, cause earlier he just seems to be dismissing this guy just out of hand. Yeah. We don't get any indication that he knows the guy. And then all of a sudden he's yeah. like, he made a gun rack at shop class. We're like, oh, so he does know this guy. Because honestly, it wasn't clear that they were went to the same school. I wasn't sure if he was supposed to be still in high school or in college. Again, a little bit hinky with dialogue. But yeah, yeah he's trying to be helpful and not doing a great job of it. I, I so identified with a lot of his moments like that. Because, like, even though Charlie is the oldest, like, Bailey clearly seems to be the one who's trying to hold it all together. And he feels like a very real 17-year-old in that situation. Like, he just, like, yeah. it's like, oh, what can I, oh, I, I totally, gun rack. Okay, he made a gun rack in shop class. And she's just yeah. like, that's the best you could do? 
Good point. I guess I'm not sad anymore. Yeah. Even though Charlie is the oldest, we have to kind of assume, because they haven't really given us this information, since he's 24, it's possible that he had been out of the house for... Five years. Four or five years, yeah. Before their parents passed away. We don't get that information in the pilot, but if that's the case, it would make sense that the two teenagers aren't as close to him. Yeah. Because he could have moved out when they were still kind of tweens, and they've been going through the high school kind of coming of age experience without him really around. So that would explain why he's kind of a little more absent. But they have this kind of tender moment with Bailey and Julia where tender, but like not super sentimental where he's like, well, what do you want me to say? And she goes, I want you to say something that makes everything seem like it's going to be okay, which is the kind of thing you hope a parent will say in that situation. And he kind of says, I don't, I know, but I don't know what to say. I'm not mom and dad. Yeah. You know, I too am a child. We are only a year apart. (laughs) I too am a child. (laughs) I don't fucking know what to say in this situation. I'm not that great a big brother and I'm definitely not a parent. Yeah. Um, So we kind of get to the core of their problem between the two of them, which is that they're both having to play at being sort of responsible adults and like parents to Claudia, because over the past six months, Charlie hasn't really been around, but they are also children. Yeah. <laughs> and then we go into the scene where the little sister goes to visit her violin teacher alone. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on? I guess this was the scene that made me think that he was like friend of the family or, or close with her mom or something, because he talks about how her mom was this gifted violinist and sort of the way it was delivered to me said that he knew the mom and like there was like there was a connection there which i think the show is meaning to portray that he's roughly the same age as her mom like it just seems like that he's the connection yeah i guess that would explain if that was the case why he's so weirdly invested yeah in her but to me it didn't read like oh he must be a friend of the family it read like why is this guy so freaking invested he presumably has other students. My read on that relationship is that he was close with the family and has been teaching her for a long time and feels somewhat responsible for her post-parents. Right. Because she shows up and says, I pawned my violin. And he's like, what? Who? who uh, a little bit of who authorized yeah. you to do that. But also he's like, how can you can't do that? You know, you have to continue your lessons. And she says... It's a money thing. We need a nanny for Owen and we, you know, we're having trouble balancing the money and lessons are expensive. So she's basically saying, not only did I pawn my violin, I I did it because it's not like she just didn't think that that would prevent her from taking lessons. She was thinking, I have to stop lessons because, you know, my my baby brother needs a nanny. And the the teacher is immediately like, okay, okay, how can we salvage the situation? I'll just have to take you on as a scholarship student until you guys kind of get back on your feet. The way that he's immediately like, no, 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 this cannot happen. Uh, we have to figure this out. It would make more sense if he was a friend of the family. I just wish there had been one line where he's like, hey, your mom trusted me to take your musical career or your musical education uh, into my hands or whatever. It, one line to give a reason why this guy is so invested. I guess I want to comment on this whole relationship and like his high level of investment in Claudia's music and how he seems to be really pushing her and like very motivated to get her in this contest and everything. I was Claudia 
like when I was 11, I was taking lessons from a, a, a very motivated teacher who was highly invested in me and my musical future. Like all of these interactions and his sort of behavior and his view of her and her talent and everything to me felt totally natural because I grew up in that world. Ah. That's how violin teachers are. They're, they're incredibly intense. <laughs> okay. Like that, that felt very real. And it's funny that, that you kind of read it as him being like pushing her too hard or, or overly invested or whatever. Cause to me, all of those scenes read like, wow, he's being incredibly compassionate and understanding of her situations. And like, <laughs> He's being very accommodating of of her like eleven year old attempts to solve family problems. Like, I wish my teacher had been a little bit more like him when I was a kid. And you're reading it like, wow, okay. God, this guy is pushing this child way too hard. And I I read it as like, oh, he's being so sweet and he's nice. Being so nice. <laughs> it, that's kind of, that is hilarious because yeah, I have no experience like that. I was never talented enough in anything as a child that anybody took a special interest in my skills. So I only know that relationship from seeing it in other movies and TV shows. And it seemed like, whoa, buddy, you're getting super invested for not being. I've seen that relationship depicted with a parent, yeah. especially a parent who is also a musician being like, no, your career, because they're looking long game. But I was not used to seeing that from a teacher, yeah. you know, especially a teacher that they don't establish that he's a yeah. friend of the family or anything like that. And just the fact that he's like. No, no, no. You don't understand. The conversation they have in this scene is so weird because the show plays it like he is the voice of reason. Yeah. And like you said, he's being compassionate and helping. Right. And to me, it absolutely read like he was being a fucking asshole who is not being understanding of the fact that she is 11 years old. She likes violin, but she wants to be in plays with her friends and be a normal kid as well. And also her parents died six months ago because he says, you have an incredible gift. Do you realize how lucky you are? And she goes, I don't feel lucky. And that should have been the moment he goes, oh, right. Your parents died. Understandable. You don't feel lucky. But he goes, well, you are and It's like, fuck you, guy. I, I yeah. Again, I think it's probably like a lot of my personal experience and sort of what I had growing up, but like I kind of read the scene as he was looking at her going, you're making a snap decision because you're, you're a child and, and you don't have, you're not taking the long view of anything. Like don't, don't give up on this violin thing just because you're in a tricky moment. But the way the, the way the dialogue is played, it does seem like he's not, it's like you're missing a crucial crucial piece of information in this conversation teacher guy yeah but also it's not just that she says look i love violin of course i do violin is the only thing that makes me happy but i had to sell my violin because my little brother no she says i never can do anything fun i can't be a normal yeah. kid i can't be in the play with my friends she has yeah, other yeah. concerns that are creating a barrier that are separating a, a bit of a crowbar between her and violin lessons. It's not just the money situation. He's acting like it's just the money. The thing is, I don't want Claudia to give up violin lessons either. I don't want her to have to pawn her violins yeah. or her little brother can have a nanny. Of course not. It's not that. It's 
It's the fact that he's completely sweeping her concerns about wanting to be a normal kid and be in a play with her friends under the rug. She's 11 years old. She has time to become a fucking famous violinist, okay? Let her be in a play with her friends. Yeah. This this whole scene would have worked so much better if it had had one more line where he says something like, look, go get your violin back. Think about it for a week. Like, give it a week before you make a decision. You made this decision really quickly. Just give it another week. Sleep on it or something like that. Because in the next scene, we see Claudia has gotten her violin back from the pawnbroker. She gets it out on a street corner and, like, plays a song for sort of the people who are there waiting for the bus. And you can see the the joy rising in her and that she really does love this instrument. And there is like some sort of direct line from her soul to her fingers, to the instrument. Like it's this beautiful thing. And all the people on the street corner start clapping for her. And she grins and bows. It's a, it's a nice moment. We needed that moment earlier. We needed to see her enjoyment of the violin. We have not seen it up until this point. All we have seen is her being like, but I want to be in a play. I don't want to go to this competition. And again. It seems like he's forcing her into something. And and if that prior scene with him talking to her about violin playing, if he had been like, just give it some time. Go get your violin. Go play it in the park. See if people watch you. See if people, other people see what I see. Like if he kind of. Gave her that opportunity. He has a line where he says, do you understand the gift that you have? You can make beautiful music whenever you want. Which is, obviously they were tying that into the next scene. Because yeah, she pulls out her violin at a, at a bus stop and just starts playing. And plays a beautiful piece that you would not expect. A complicated piece you would not expect a child to play. And everyone at the bus stop is delighted by this. And of course, me, right? And I wondered if you had I did too. too. I did too. Here when, we go. You're like, is she going to become a busker? Is she going to become a busker? Yeah. Is that gonna be her solution I was, to their money yeah problems? i was like is she gonna like show up at the house with like two thousand dollars and be like i just played on the wharf and i was about to be like fuck you show that's not how busking works but they didn't quite oh, no, do that. i was i was hoping that would happen oh. i didn't expect her to make that much but like oh. i thought she was gonna set down her case and start playing just to play and then people were gonna start putting money in and for her to go bing but i was actually really happy that it that it wasn't uh that the show didn't do that that she got to kind of have this unalloyed joy of just, I'm playing and people like it. Obviously, that was the actual moment that they were going for. My brain just yeah. went, Ooh, a musician is playing in public. <laughs> she set her case down open, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Busking is about yeah, yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. But it, it was just weird because his, we, we just, we should have seen her enjoyment of the violin earlier in the episode because it felt, Otherwise, it felt like he was just railroading her into being a violinist where she had the skill but not the love of yeah. it. And then all of a sudden, there's this scene, this cute scene where she all of a sudden loves violin. And we're like, oh, well, I guess I guess she loves making music now. Because even in the first scene where we see her playing violin and we can tell she's really gifted, on her music stand is actually the, the script for the play that the school is doing. And she's like reading the lines. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Interesting. Yeah. So she's, yeah, even in that scene. It's it's like she's distracted from violin even there. She's not playing for the pure joy of it. She's practicing because she has to practice. Yeah. It's weird that they set us up to think she didn't love violin. And then, ah, (laughs) surprise, she does. In the next scene, Uh, there's a knock at the door. Bailey is waiting at home to interview another nanny. This scene is so short and it's weird. They don't have like a line of dialogue where he goes, oh, 
another nanny. Wonder what this one who will be. She's probably some old grump who will be freaked out about the smell. We don't, you'd think they'd give us a line or something to set up the juxtaposition. Because then he opens the door and she turns around and it's like there's a glow behind her. Her hair is blowing in the wind. She's basically a supermodel. And yeah, like you Isn't said. Isn't there like she, a music cue? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's like yeah. a little like, blah. But it comes out of nowhere. He just walks up to the door and opens the door. And then, beautiful lady. It's like, that would have been way more. We didn't even, we didn't get a single line in a previous scene about, oh, we've only got one more person that the agency is willing to send yeah. us. I hope this one works out. She's probably going to be terrible. We'll have to say yes to her, even if she's a jerk or something. <laughs> yeah. Give us one line to set it up. And instead, oh. it's just, okay, Bailey. Now, there's a beautiful woman. She goes, hi, uh, the agency sent me. And he's like, oh, okay. He's he's just yeah. staring and like, dur, 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 you know. She's like, do you have any questions for me? And he's like, did, did you have a hard time getting here? <laughs> yeah. Like you can see the bones of the joke that they're trying to oh, set up. I but they just I I loved it. The her oh, arrival. It just killed me. Cause I I wasn't expecting like it caught me off guard. I was expecting the the nanny that they eventually hired to be sort of like a surrogate mother figure. Like we were gonna get some sort of like Mary Poppins esque character. And instead, like it's like Oh, I was <sighs> expecting it to be like a constant struggle yeah. where they were always having a turnover yeah. of nannies. I was not expecting them to introduce a regular character by the end of the episode who was going to be their nanny for like a long time. I thought the nanny thing was going to be a constant joke, different nanny every episode or something. Oh, that would, Oh my God. That would be a great week to week show though, where you could have like all these amazing guest stars come in and be the nanny. Like yeah. the Christmas episode, they have and Julie Andrews as the nanny, you know, like yeah. it would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. Just different. Like, crotchety old ladies yeah. uh you know young women who you know who don't know what the heck they're doing <laughs> a crazy episode where there's a man who's the nanny a manny what? <laughs> yeah anyway uh freddie prince jr shows up you know <laughs> it's and, and again and then the, the very next scene claudia comes home claudia's like you just gave owen to the stranger and like she's grilling bailey like you just hired this woman because she's hot or something. And he's, and he's like, I, uh, and he's like, what are her qualifications? She's like, I don't know. And then she comes in with the baby and it's like, oh, Owen was a deer. Oh, but he needs a diaper change and leaves the room. And then Bailey immediately turns around and goes, oh, I just remembered. She's a grad student in child psychology. Great references. Three previous nanny jobs. And you're like, yeah. oh, okay. It's like, they didn't even give us a moment of setup of, Oh no, Bailey just hired this woman because she's pretty. What are we going to do? She won't know how to take care of a baby. She's just a pretty lady. And then she shows up and goes, well, you know, my, my studies in child psychology have prepared me for this or something. It's just, he goes, oh, I just remembered. She's a grad student. He And then he reveals, and this this was a nice bit of like, I guess, writing setup payoff or whatever. That, yeah. Because she's like, how can we afford her? And he's like, well, we're paying her this low amount per week. Plus, she gets to use the Jeep to drive to school. Yeah, because she's like, are you sure it's okay for me to use your Jeep to drive to class? And he goes, hey, it's part of the deal. Yep. And Claudia's like, what? And that actually was like, you know what? It was a good plan because when they had the fight about money earlier, he said, we'll have to give up whatever we have to give up. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, like your brand new Jeep. But they had signed a lease, so they can't 
undo that. This was actually very smart. So it was one of those moments of Bailey actually being responsible. Yeah. And kind of being the mom. Yeah, and there were just the resourcefulness of it. It really pleased me because it it provided a nice arc in the show for the the character Bailey, but also just kind of like it's a good writing setup kind of payoff thing later. It, It was a complicated thing and a good thing for the plot, but they spent so much time on all the other stuff that they have to like throw that out in a three lines of dialogue. And it was like, yeah. oh, okay. Oh, I guess that's happening. Anyway, we then go to a scene where uh, Big Brother is visiting Joe at the restaurant, uh, the owner of their dad, the, the current owner of their dad's restaurant. And he asks him for a loan. And Joe's like immediately seems a little bit like, okay, but I'm a little bit cautious about this like if you need the money i'm gonna give you the money because he's clearly friend of the family he really cares about these kids but he says like okay but you have to work at the bar this was actually my favorite scene in the episode where joe like the character of charlie kind of coalesces finally and you sort of understand that he's had this protracted adolescence because joe says something about you've you sat at this bar i've watched you like come in here asking for loans so presumably coming in asking his dad for money like in his early 20s and stuff. Yeah. And it just kind of seems like... Because he says, you got to start working at the bar. And he goes, what? No, I'm, I'm going to get a job. Yeah. Don't worry about that. And Joe's like, hmm, where have I heard this yeah. before? I feel like I've heard you have the same conversation with your dad. Yeah, and it's like Joe is kind of like... It's sort of this tough love thing where he offers a very good solution. And he's really actually offering to help him... Like give him a job as a bartender. And uh, and teach yeah. him how to be yeah, a bartender. It, it's just really nice. Like... I, I would like I had a lot of anxiety for these kids and this family just watching this episode because it's like who like I get that they're taking care of themselves or whatever. And that's the joke. But like, who is their their broader support network? Do they have no uncles or cousins or any like where where is literally anybody? Because they seem kind yeah, and no grandparents or anything. Yeah, they, it's, they it's seem like pretty nice, well adjusted kids besides their parents being dead. So they must have their parents must have had friends or whatever we've got we've got the violin teacher and the and the owner of the restaurant who are like presumably you know adults who care about them and are trying to help them out but yeah there's no other family we never meet the lawyer who's supposed to be um managing the estate or whatever either it's like or or learn anything about him so but he basically the scene ends with charlie agreeing okay he'll work at the bar in exchange for the loan the next scene is uh, Bailey goes to, he finds Julia on like a playground. Very classic. They're on the swings having this conversation where he tries to cheer her up. Because he realizes he messed up trying to cheer her up in the previous scene. And he opens up and he's like, last year I liked this girl and I kept asking her out. And she just finally told me to take a hike. And I was really sad about it. And I didn't tell any of you guys because, you know, it was kind of a private thing that I was sad about. And she's like, well, who did you tell? And he's like, I talked to dad, I guess. This was one of my favorite parts of the entire show. Oh, it was so good. Because you think this is going to be the moment where she's like, well, what did dad say? And he's going to remember this amazing piece of wisdom. Yeah, wisdom from, from beyond the grave. From their dad that was going to resonate not only with her, but with their whole situation. And instead, what he says is, I, I don't remember what he said. But it was something that made everything seem like it was going to be okay. And it's like, damn, because that's what it's really like. You don't always remember the advice that your parents give you, even when 
they give you some great piece of advice that does make everything seem like it's going to be okay. You don't necessarily remember it a year later. And just that that moment kind of turning or your expectations on its ear was like, I liked that. That was actually a well-written bit. It was really lovely. And then he does kind of say something about like, but I, I need to, I, we need to hold on to this family and we need to hold on to the stuff that really matters. Family dinner yeah. matters to me because it's one of those things that keeps the family together. Like you kind of get that he's not just being like an asshole as a stickler for rules. He wants to keep family dinner going Yeah. because it, it's what keeps them together. He, he wants to hold them together. Yeah. And he says it would have mattered to mom and dad that we kept doing this too. And that's important. And he, he does point out like she, I think she says, why don't we ever talk about them? And he's like, he kind of points out, you know, I think we're trying to like keep it together and kind of put on a brave face for Claudia. But yeah, we we need to talk about it and we need to stay together and talk to each other and not only talk about the plumbing and who's, you know, the nanny and all that stuff. We need to stay together. And that's why the dinner is so important because it's a time for us to right. just catch up with each other. So then we go to the weekly dinner at the restaurant. They reveal that Charlie is working there. Uh, Joe says the title of the show, Salinger's Party of Five. So great. To the waitress to get him a table. Oh, yeah. Um, But then basically they wrap up that, yeah, with the money he borrowed from Joe, he's paid the mortgage payment. Charlie has. So that's taken care of. Bailey points out that he has a retail job, which we haven't heard anything about up to this point. Works at a shoe store. Claudia's like, and I walk dogs. It's like, okay, if you say so. And they're like, hey, with all, with the, you know, everybody's got jobs, except for Julia, apparently. You know, we might just make it. And then Julia shows up, and everything's going to be okay. And they start kind of joshing in that, oh, this is a trope of TV that sometimes drives me insane. It's just a little bit of dialogue that sort of fades out while the credits begin to roll, right? Right. And I think sometimes it's improvised and sometimes it's scripted. But even when it's scripted, it's clear that they just don't pay any attention. They just write whatever because they're like, oh, people won't really be paying attention because this is right. one that this is just you're not actually supposed to We don't to know when the fade out is going to yeah. go beyond audibility. Because the conversation they have is so weird. There's like a, a basket of rolls on the table and Charlie takes one and Claudia's like, hey, I want the sourdough. I always have the sourdough. I'm like, there's a, a basket of rolls and they're all different kinds of bread. I've never seen that in a restaurant. And then he's like, okay, here. And he gives it back to her and she goes, ew, you took a bite out of it. And it's like, well, yeah, you demanded it after he'd already taken it. I don't know. It was like this weird conversation that you sometimes get. Yeah. Cause they don't know when the fade out is going to happen. Yeah. So they might've told yeah. the actors just improvise. This will mostly be faded out. Yeah. And then more of it was audible than they expected or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then the outro music. Oh my God. So good. Dude, do you lose your mind too? It's like, it's from a different show. Yeah. Like as that scene fades out, we've got some singer songwriter nineties thing happening. And then it jarringly cuts to this other song over the credits, which you get on shows sometimes, you know, anyway, I, my notes in the credits were somebody must have already had the rights to this. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we're running out of money on the show. What are we? What music have we already got the rights to? And that is our recap. And now, a word from our sponsor. This episode brought to you by Corium Irony Zoo. 
Corium Irony Zoo helps you meet your specialized staffing needs from onboarding to retirement. Let our machine learning trained systems connect you to the right staffer to help service your contractual obligations. If you're looking for a way to make sure your clients are getting the best care from start to end, contact us at www.coriumironyxu.com. Corium Irony Zoo. We're definitely a business. Now that we've completed our recap, let us move on to our first segment. What will this show be? This is the part where we talk about what we think is going to be kind of the day-to-day vibe of the show as it goes on and what the tone will will be as the show continues. And I really felt like I thought it was going to be more of like a relatively lighthearted thing. Yeah, I did as well. But then I saw some stuff on the internet that sounds like it got kind of intense. Oh, as it goes on, like there's more intenseness coming. Yeah. I thought this was going to be much more lighthearted and then the actual like nuts and bolts of it, even in the pilot was much more dramatic. Yeah. Leaning. But I thought it was going to stay light or get a little more light, especially because it ends on such a light note. Yeah. Hey, everything's going to be okay. Uh, But yeah, having seen a little bit about it online, I was like, oh, okay. sounds like it does get quite dark. But yeah, it definitely seems like it's going to be pretty, you know, uh, serialized, not so much in each encapsulated episode. You know, it's going to be kind of ongoing. Right. The stories. They'll have a main thing they focus on each episode. But each week is probably like, oh, no, the the roof is leaking where are we gonna find the money for that or oh no the neighbors figured out our parents aren't here and there's an inspector coming who's going to inspect the house for safety for children shenanigans i thought it was going to be more like that but i feel like it's going to be way more dramatic way less oh no someone's a thing is happening and then at the end oh we, we resolved it I think it's going to be a lot more serious based on the little bits that I saw online. Yeah. And also based on my experience with the pilot, I feel like it's going to be much more serious as well. Let's move on to a much more fun segment that Strangely came up with called Where Did the Money Go? I think, you know, looking at this pilot, like this is a very standard pilot that pretty much only has, they probably only built two sets, uh, which would be the house, sort of the 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 home space, and then possibly the bar. Yeah. Honestly, the house felt like a real house. Yeah. The house definitely had the the feeling of a vet, an actual house rather than a set. If it is a series of sets, they built a surprising number of them because there's the kitchen, the living room, Julia's room, whatever bedroom Owen was put to to, to sleep in. Yeah. Julia's, oh, Julia's room that's actually the room where she makes out with her boy, which is her her new room. And then they show her in her old room, which is clearly more childish. And Claudia's been sleeping there. So they, yeah. And it was not big enough for two people either. Like, there's actually quite a number of that. And then we've got the, the restaurant and the violin teacher's apartment. And then everything else is 
out of doors or the, shot the school. They probably shot in an actual school, not in a set. There was a surprising number of locations. It felt less set Yeah. It felt more movie-like and less TV-like. It, they, they went for a, a more of a cinematic feel there. So I think that's, yeah, the money went on shots of San Francisco, outdoor shots of San Francisco, and just, yeah, giving everything that feel. Yeah, the club scene, I think, is definitely the most complex, like, huge number of extras, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, oftentimes in sort of a sci-fi uh, fantasy-type show, like Dark Angel or something like that, we will see... You know, there's like the one big action set piece that they did or, or something like that where they're it's like clearly like this is where you spent all of the dough. Whereas whoever was producing on this, I, I feel like really spread the money around very evenly. Yeah, there's a very consistent across the board sort of look and feel like you said, it's very cinematic. It's not like, oh, this is the big scene where we're outside on the street and then the rest of this is in a three camera studio set of our apartment where you never see that that one wall. Yeah. <laughs> so shall we move on? Yes. Everyone's favorite segment. And there, here's where you will drop in your Cliffs and Ships voice. Exactly. Cliffs and Ships. I completely forgot to plan for this. So you talk about yours while I think about it. <laughs> I, I guess I have one sort of writing thing that I would like to have a little more of. And then I have one ship. So I would like to see at some point in the future a, a sort of like stability achieved mm -hmm. if the show is constantly threatening like the fiscal situation or oh the family might get split up and that's like the driving force of the writing in the show i'm just not as interested like i i would want them to sort of at some point achieve an island of stability where like charlie has a job that's covering the bills they kind of get the money managed and then we can sort of just tell stories about the like life stories yeah the, the absence of parents as the emotional guiding force is a far more interesting storytelling thing to me long term than, oh, no, how are we going to pay for the sink that we plugged up with whole slices of fucking pizza? Yeah. So I, I would like to see more of that. I would like to have the violin teacher's relationship to the family fleshed out a little bit to have it make sense why 11-year-old is just hanging out with him on the reg. And why he's, well... I want to know why he's so invested, but I guess you kind of answered that. Yeah. Like, I know that that's a, that's a thing in the classical music world, but, like, I would like to know more about him, his relationship to the family, his investment in Claudia, all of that. Yeah. And in, in terms of ships, I would, like, we, we haven't seen Charlie interact with Kirsten, the maid, yet. And I would love... Excuse me. Or, Excuse no, me. The, the nanny. The nanny. Fuck. Sorry. We haven't seen... She doesn't do windows. <laughs> we haven't seen Charlie interact with her yet. And I would love to have that relationship interaction be like kind of a, a, a TV thing where he meets her. He like thinks she's hot and she just like he doesn't even register with her because he just like has never really done anything with his life. Like yeah. ostensibly she's a grad student. He's 24. It seems like they'd be about the same age mm -hmm. and he's just never done anything. Like he's just kind of still working these like odd jobs and stuff. I would love to, to see him meeting her be this impetus to like go to school and like actually make something of his life. Oh, that would be nice. I would love if that was the struggle for that character going forward that like he, he starts to seek some genuine upward mobility. Yeah. I would like to see that for him. Cause I think that'd be really interesting because he's already like like you know he's 24 like he's already ostensibly been a functioning adult for 5ish years but clearly hasn't been mm -hmm. 
because like you know he's kind of skating on at the bar as joe said that's about it for my cliffs and ships kind of future thoughts on the show do you have any i was kind of predicting that the season one cliffhanger was going to be or the season one you know the big thing at the end of the season would be a, a serious threat of them getting separated Uh uh-huh but like you said that would be kind of boring i i don't want that to be the thing right but it seems just from the pilot which as we figured out from this show from doing this podcast that it's almost impossible to predict what that season one cliffhanger will be from the pilot they almost never introduce in the pilot what ends up being the the major drama at the end of the first season but just from this it seems like it would be there's a serious threat to them being separated but um could be but also, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being something that we they haven't even introduced. I mean, I could see that the you know maybe the bar is in hock to some Colombian drug lords because <laughs> Joe made a bad business decision. You know, I wanted Joe to be a more recurring character, but I looked up. I was trying to look up the actor. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And found out he's only in. He's he on the Wikipedia page. He's not listed in the main cast. Ah. He's listed under the section of like people who appeared you know, a handful of times. Right. Like there are tons of other people who we haven't met in the pilot that end up being recurring characters uh-huh. who he was not, he did not register. So I was like, oh, that's kind of a bummer. I thought he was going to be more of a driving force, especially with Charlie working at the bar. So maybe Charlie working at the bar doesn't actually continue. Maybe he ends up going somewhere else. Who freaking knows? This is definitely a show that I could see going from pilot to sort of regular run first episode, episode two. I could see being a, sh- a show where there's a lot of retooling that happens in between. Like, you know, episode two starts and it turns out that Charlie has a decent job working as a carpenter or something. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of that whole plot line disappears. Yeah, it, it, that kind of thing does occur. I just remembered. So for ships, obviously, this show is mostly about these siblings. So there's not uh-huh. not anything to ship really, except that. The two characters who are about the same age, which I did see some uh, some stuff on the internet to suggest that 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 is not a non-issue. Yeah, the fact that they're roughly the same age and are both very attractive people, uh, that's not something the show weirdly avoids. But I did look a little into who else ends up being on the show. Uh huh. And God, the cast of the show is just so much '90s because three people eventually uh, end up being on the show as love interests of the siblings. Michael Gorgian becomes Julia's boyfriend, apparently, in season two. Michael Gorgian, you may know, as Heroin Bob from SLC Punk. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You may also know him as Skittery, one of the newsies in Newsies. Oh, God. If you're me. Anyway, he's on that show. Bailey's girlfriend? Okay, think of the most... 90s actress you can who would be age appropriate to be Bailey's girlfriend on that show in like season two or three throw out a name I don't know uh Sarah Michelle Geller. damn it you were right about the three names because it was the 90s I was really hoping you'd say Jennifer Love Hewitt oh because I was like who else would it be Jennifer Love freaking Hewitt. What was up with three-letter names in the 90s? Yeah, three-word names like Rachel Lay Cook. Yeah. Jennifer Love Hewitt, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Everybody had three names. Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> no, he was an early 2000s guy. Damn it. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, 
hyphenated last name. It wasn't a middle name thing. He had a legit reason. Well. He wasn't he wasn't doing the middle name thing. Anyway, Claudia gets a boyfriend eventually. Oh. And who do you suppose plays her boyfriend? Only Jeremy London, another incredibly 90s face. <laughs> who I already mentioned earlier because his character in Mallrats is T.S. Amazing. Anyway, now all that I ship is all of them. Yeah. This is my point. I just ship Michael Gurgeon and me. <laughs> anyway, moving on, I think it is time to do our final verdict. The question is, did this show do the job of a pilot, i.e., did it make you want to watch more? For me, it's a, a tentative yes. Like, I think I I am cu- sort of curious to watch a couple more episodes before I make my final decision. I'm not, like, chomping at the bit to watch a few more episodes, but similar to my reaction to Frasier and sort of my attraction to these things with small stories... Like, this does seem like a show that moving forward is is based around small stories. Mm-hmm. And since it has, it doesn't really have that sitcom vibe of like, oh my God, like the whole episode revolves around the fact that Julia puts up a poster of a rock band that Charlie thinks is stupid. <laughs> and they have like a, fu- you know, like yeah. it's, it's not, that's not where the drama is being mined from. I could see myself enjoying the small scale stories that the show presents I was initially a casual yes. Uh-huh. Like when the when the credits were rolling after I stopped freaking out about the weird credits music, I went, yeah, you know, I could definitely see myself putting this on, watching a few more at least because it's on Netflix and it's easy and I would throw it on and watch a few more episodes. However, when I went online, I don't know, to look up some specific piece of information I wanted and I saw some references to some of the level of drama yeah. that was added later in the show. Look, strangely, this show ran... For six years, right? This show ran for six or seven seasons. Somebody gets cancer is all I'm going to say at some point in the show. Oh, okay? God. Somebody gets cancer. Yeah. As soon as I saw that, I I felt myself like I was pinwheeling on the edge of an abyss called Remember Gilmore Girls? I had a very emotional... Uh, experience watching all of Gilmore Girls uh, two years ago. We could talk about that another day. But it made me immediately think of that experience and go, hmm, maybe not. So I am at the present a no. Well, all right then. That That's it. That's our final verdict. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pilot House. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pilot House Pod. Visit our website at pilothousepodcast.com or email us at pilothousepodcasts at gmail.com to suggest future shows. Our podcast is entirely listener-supported, so thanks this week to our supporters Chris and Jerome. Visit patreon.com slash pilothouse to find out how you can become a series regular. Pilot House is a Herringbone Society production. An advert between the end of the show and the credits? Yeah. I didn't used to do that. Oh, yeah. Why would you ever... Come back after the ad for just to watch the credits. They wouldn't do that. Star Trek does that. Oh, okay. You say so. I haven't watched TV with ads in a really long time. All right. That's it. Bye! Bye! <laughs> that one was actually very well-timed Yeah. for a Skype yep. call. That yep. was like, we were barely off. Nice.